This starts on page 30 today, page 30 in our notes. We're looking at uh, part four, and we begin today our evaluation of the various holiness movements, second blessing theologies that we have been looking at over the last three weeks. And today, uh, let me just start off with a little review. I've included that chart there. Where else can you go in this area and get charts like this, you know, diagrams like this? I mean, you know, nowhere. nowhere. So we start with Wesley, his doctrine of Christian perfection, second blessing, after salvation, after conversion. You have another experience sometimes later where sin is eradicated. And Wesley uh, brings that into the Methodist Church. Uh, people outside the Methodist Church, like Charles Finney, pick up on that. He has the same exact doctrine, the famous evangelist. It stays in the Methodist Church in the 1850s. A woman by the name of Phoebe Palmer comes up with a simplified method of how to get this. Wesley didn't exactly explain, how do you get this second blessing, this Christian perfection? He talked about fasting and praying and other means. She said there's got to be a simple me- simple method. And her method came basically down to dedication or consecration. It's also connected with the baptism or filling of the Spirit. This led to what's called the Holiness Movement, which is a Methodist kind of movement that led to other churches like the Nazarene, the Wesleyan Church. <clears throat> but then others began to pick up on this experience outside of the Methodist Church. We call that the higher life movement. They didn't like the talk, the talk of eradication of sin. And so they changed terminology. The thing like, well, you're just not conscious of sin. When you get this experience, you're just not conscious or you don't commit any known sin. You're in a higher place, a higher plane, a higher life. You live above sin. This comes into the Keswick movement at the end of the 1890s, 1870s into the 1900s, and we talked that about last week, about Keswick and Lewis Perry Chafer at Dallas as one representative in our country who affected the evangelical movement. So I say in number one, all these movements can be traced back to Wesley's instantaneous sanctification, entire sanctification. The key feature is justification and sanctification are distinguished from one another as two separate gifts and are each obtained instantly by two separate acts of faith. Now, ultimately, this means sanctification may never take place. You may be saved, but you may never really grow much because you don't get this second blessing. And I've said that's wrong because I've said sanctification is not automatic, but it's inevitable. And I'll be showing that as the first thing today. I mentioned number three. Wesley never clearly explained, but Phoebe Palmer gives us the simple method of dedication, and that stayed with us today. So in my experiences and the churches I was in, there was always a big emphasis on dedication. You come forward for dedication. You're always going forward for dedication. Number four. Sanctification does not actually bring freedom from all sin, but freedom from sinning, or freedom from conscious sinning, or freedom from commission of sins, known sins. I mean, Wesley called this, he called this Christian perfection, but it really wasn't. It's not really. 
The great theologian B.B. Warfield called it imperfect perfection. That's really what is being taught here, imperfect perfection. It's kind of perfection, but not really. It's not a stable condition. Because you dedicate yourself, you're filled with the Spirit, you're on this higher plane, but you have to maintain this moment by moment. And the reason why I'm sort of against this, one of the reasons I'm against this, is because it produces an unstable Christian life. My wife and I were just talking about this yesterday, I think. Because we were in the same kind of churches, and and there's never you don't build strong Christians, I don't think, with this kind of theology, because you're always up and down. You're waiting for the next revival, the next, and you go forward and this, and you're back to your old way. There's just no stability here with this constant uh, dedication, consecration, mm-hmm. filling in and out, and this kind of thing. Then I pay on, say on page thirty-one. What this second blessing of sanctification means changes from Wesleyan Methodist concept of Christian perfection with its emphasis on the eradication of sin in the believer to the idea of counteraction with the Keswick, with Keswick and Chafer, Lewis Beery Chafer of Dallas Seminary brought about by the dedication and filling of the Spirit. And I've tried to illustrate what counteraction is. I'm going to talk a lot more about counteraction eventually here in a couple weeks, in our final session. But you have the old nature and the new nature, and so you have victory over sin by the Holy Spirit sort of counteracting these natures. So you're in sort of a stasis field. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is sort of counteracting this unless you fall out one way or another, you sin, then you lose that victory over sin and you have to regain it. Well, let's talk about an evaluation of the second blessing theologies. I mentioned again, as I've said before, that there is a lot to admire from these people, holiness people, from Wesley. Wesley did great things. He, many people were saved. He saved England from a lot of trouble and difficulty. And these people were godly people. And some people ask me, well, how can these people be godly people if they have the wrong... <laughs> Theology about sanctification. Because actually sanctification, in some ways, is a fairly simple thing. Sanctification, if there is a key to progressive sanctification, it's obedience to God and His Word. And everybody does that. No matter what you talk about the second blessing or dedication, all Christians tend to want to obey God and His Word. So all people are going to make progress in their sanctification no matter how they may explain it. These people had some experiences. I think they uh, explained their experiences incorrectly. They described them in a problematic way that doesn't square with the doctrine of sanctification. But they were seeking honestly. They had the right motivation to please God and serve him. Now, I want to talk about four areas <clears throat> that we have touched on in the last three weeks that need our attention. Uh, four areas. One is the relationship between justification and sanctification because, remember, all these second blessing theologies say you are converted, you are justified, but then later you have another faith experience of sanctification. And I'm saying there is no gap. Once you're justified, you're converted, sanctification starts immediately. It's inevitable. And I'm going to show that in this first section here from Romans chapter 6. 
Another issue that comes up is dedication. We've talked a lot about Phoebe Palmer, dedication, Romans 12. We want to deal with that. What does the Bible say about dedication, consecration? We've also been talking about the carnal Christian because when you're saved in this second blessing theology, you're converted, nothing happens until that second blessing of sanctification. In the meantime, you're just a carnal Christian. What is that? Is there such a thing? Is there a category? They say there's a whole category called carnal Christians. Is that allowable in Scripture? And then finally, we want to talk about the baptism and filling of the Spirit, because that's a big issue. So those are the four issues we'll be discussing. We want to look today at this question of justification and sanctification. As I say here, a genuine desire for holiness, along with a general dissatisfaction with their own spiritual experience has led many to follow in the steps of Wesley, seek an additional experience beyond their conversion that would deliver them from their daily struggles with sin. They've looked for a higher, happy, and victorious life where they could be at rest, what Barabbas calls the heart rest of those who have learned the secret of perfect and constant victory over temptation. However, this search is inherently defective since it's primarily based, as I've constantly noted the past three weeks, on an unbiblical disjunction between justification and progressive sanctification. So on page 32, there's the chart that I've been showing you. You're justified, you're converted, but then you're just a carnal Christian and you're waiting for that next experience, that next faith experience of sanctification, dedication. So I'm saying you can't divide justification and this progressive sanctification with this large temporal gap that the second blessing theologies talk about. I say in number two there, in the middle, in the truth, the believer is progressively being set apart from the power and practice of sin from the moment he or she believes and receives forgiveness of sin. Sanctification does not wait on a second act of faith. We are not saved by faith, but by faith. There's only one faith that comes with justification. Now, that faith grows. The faith of justification is more passive. It becomes more active. It's the same faith that we begin with, we continue with. So, justification always issues in sanctification. And I have the chart there we've been using from Grudem to show that here is the correct way of understanding sanctification. We're converted, we're justified. Then we begin the process of sanctification. It's not an easy process. It's a struggle. We go up, we go down, but ultimately God brings us forward until the day of our death or rapture. We have glorification, then we're perfect. Wesley was right. God wants us to be perfect. It's just not possible in this life. Well, page uh, 33. Throughout this life, the believer is progressively becoming holy while sin is being extirpated. So, Ed Martin saw that word, and he said he had to look it up in the dictionary. That's a word that's used in a lot of discussions. It just means removed. It actually means eradicated. But it's not the kind of eradication that Wesley was talking about. Wesley says... When you have this second blessing, sin is totally eradicated. What we're talking about is a progressive sanctification is a gradual eradication, extirpation of sin. 
So this is my crude chart trying to show that when we are first saved, we're depraved, we're sinful, we're corrupt. And as sanctification takes place, we increase in holiness. Depravity decreases, holiness increases. That's real progressive sanctification. Sanctification removes the pollution of sin gradually and renews our nature according to the image of God. Now, I say in number three, the passage that most clearly demonstrates the unbreakable bond between justification and sanctification is Romans 6. Now, here's B.B. Warfield again. When B.B. Warfield speaks, people should listen. Warfield was one of the greatest theologians ever and much to be admired. He wrote a lot on this subject. He lived during the time at the end of Finney's life. He lived during the Keswick movement. He he listened to Chafer, and he wrote a book about this called Perfection, Perfectionism. I don't, I didn't put it out there as a recommended at this point. But it's a little tough going. He's dealing with a lot of German theologians and so forth, but he was just an insightful commentator, mostly known for his defense of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, if you've ever studied anything about inspiration and authority of Scripture, you hear B.B. Warfield's name. But he was also an expert on this field of sanctification, and he says, the whole sixth chapter of Romans, for example, was written with no other purpose than to assert and demonstrate that justification and sanctification are indissolubly bound together, that we cannot find the one without having the other, that to use its own figurative language, dying with Christ and living with Christ are integral elements in one disintegrable salvation. Now, there's B.B. Warfel for you, indisintegrable. I couldn't even find that in the dictionary. So follow me here if you can. It's going to be a little difficult, but I'm going to go through not everything in Romans 6, but I'm going to try to show in Romans 6, which I've often told people, told my students over the years, it could be, it's probably the most important chapter on sanctification in the Bible. Because if you don't understand this correctly, you'll never get sanctification correct. So the first eight chapters of Romans are divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8. Everybody pretty much agrees on that. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul summarizes his main point in the first four chapters. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So we don't have to worry about what chapters 1 through 4 are talking about. He tells us. It's about justification by faith. We're looking back over 1 through 4. We have been justified. Now, in chapters 5 through 8, Paul explains the doctrine of sanctification. So justification, sanctification. Uh, I say, in the latter part of chapter 5, Paul is clarifying how the law of Moses relates to justification by faith and salvation by grace. Now, why is that necessary? Well, Paul is a Jew... He's writing to Rome, but at Rome, there are a lot of Jews. The church probably started in the synagogue. Rome is filled with Jewish issues. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapters uh, 9, 10, 11. There's a lot of Jews. And if you're a Jew and you're hearing this gospel, you're wondering, okay, but what's the role of the law here? God gave us the law at Mount Sinai. Where does that fit in? Because one would think naturally, as all Jews think today, 
all Jewish people think today, that if I keep the law, God will be accepting of me and I'll go to heaven. Just like people think if I keep the commandments of the Koran, I'm going to heaven, right? So the natural thing for the Jew to think is the law was given to us to bring us salvation. But Paul says in 520, no, that's not true. The law was brought in so the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So I say here, the law of Moses didn't actually save anybody. It actually made the situation worse. A written code like the law of Moses clearly demonstrates that human beings have crossed the line into sin. They have trespassed. If you have a written code, you've trespassed. You've clearly broken the law. But the good news, Paul says, is that the grace of God that came through Jesus Christ was more than adequate to overcome all our sins, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So Paul says, yeah, the whole human race was was uh, plunged into sin through Adam. Sin is everywhere. But God comes through Jesus Christ and gives grace that t- can take care of all those sins. No matter how great the sin of man, Christ's sacrifice can cover all of that. Where grace... Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That brings us to chapter 6, verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But unfortunately, as I say here, there's always foolish people around who will try to twist what Paul says about the grace of God. Paul imagines someone might say that, well, since we've been justified, and since you've said where sin increased, grace increased all the more, why can't I just go on sinning? That's a great deal, right? I get my ticket to heaven, and I just go on sinning like I did before, right? Because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So I say Paul takes up this hypothetical in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Absolutely not, Paul says. Paul says in 6.2, and why is that? Because we cannot. Because we are those who have died to sin. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So I say here, the justified believer cannot live in sin, which means a lifestyle of sin. To live in sin is a lifestyle, the life of the unbeliever. So Paul says, you can't continue, you can't have this lifestyle of sin. And why is that? Because Paul says, we died to sin. The justified believer must not, not should not, not could not, but absolutely must lead a holy life. Sanctification is not automatic, but it's inevitable according to what Paul says in Romans 6. Number six, the justified believer must, must lead a holy life because they have died to sin. Death to sin in Paul's theology is a decisive separation from the dominion of sin so that the believer no longer lives in it. As I've said, this language living in sin is describing a lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of sin. Such that one's life can be said to be characterized by sin rather than the holiness 
that God requires. So death to sin means that we are no longer slaves to sin. It doesn't mean we never sin. I'll get that distinction there. Paul says we died to sin so that we're no longer under the dominion of sin, but it doesn't mean we never sin. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. It does mean we don't have a lifestyle of sin. That the lifestyle of a Christian is different dramatically from the lifestyle of the unbeliever. Paul says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of rule by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master. So Romans 6 is filled with this language of slavery to sin. We don't have the language here of sinlessness. Paul is not saying we died to sin, therefore we're sinless. We died to sin in the sense that sin doesn't dominate us and control us and enslave us like it did when we were lost, when we were unsaved. There's a dramatic difference. We have to get that difference between the unsaved person and the regenerate person. Back in chapter 3, Paul describes the unsaved person as a slave to sin. All we could do was sin. There's Romans 3. Let me just read it. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike are under the power of sin. Unsaved Jews and Gentiles alike are under the dominion and power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and slavery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's slavery to sin. That's under the dominion of sin. Number seven, Paul says in Romans six, the believer has been, past tense, has been delivered from this state of slavery to sin characterized, that characterizes the unsaved person. Romans six seventeen, but thanks be to God that though you used to be when you were unsaved, you used to be slaves to sin. The believer at conversion has been set on the path to holy living. And this is true for every believer, not just some special group of believers who are consecrated, dedicated, or spirit-filled. All believers are slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, 18. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Paul only knows two categories of people in this world. There's only two categories. There's not three categories. There's not the unsaved the carnal, and the spiritual, there's two categories. Those who are slaves to righteousness and those who are slaves to sin. And that's all there are. Every Christian is a slave to righteousness in that our disposition, our tendency, our nature is toward holiness. That's what we are desire down deep. Now, we still struggle with sin. We're not denying that. But we have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So again, the chart on the top of page 35, we're showing that conversion sets us on a path towards holiness and righteousness. Number eight, although believers have died to sin, that does not mean they are insensitive to its enticements. Rather, it means they are once and for all delivered from the absolute tyranny of sin, from sin as a dominating master. 
Sin's power as a tyrannical ruler is broken for the believer. The believer is no longer a slave to sin. Paul says in 6, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance, the gospel. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So a believer must lead a holy life because they are no more a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. That's Paul's whole point. A believer just cannot go on living in sin because where sin increased, grace increases all the more. It's not possible. We've been changed. We're no longer slaves to sin. There's no middle ground here. No room for a category of carnal, never to be sanctified Christians. And why is that? Why is that not possible? Conversion. Conversion ends our slavery to sin because it brings with it the transforming power of regeneration, spiritual life. The dominion of sin is broken and we receive a disposition or nature that inevitably leads to holiness. The believer is not to wait for a second work of grace for sanctification to begin. They are not to wait for a new faith experience, dedication, or another work of the Spirit to live a holy life. The new believer, every new believer has died to sin, which means they have been freed from the absolute dominion of sin and set on a path to holiness. The believer's fundamental Direction is now toward holiness. Sin is still a problem, a great problem. The believer needs to grow in holiness, to have sin extirpated. There it is again. Removed. (laughs) Lessened. To have it gradually eradicated from his life. But they can never again live in sin, that is, have a lifestyle of sin. Now, when we see Christians doing that, we wonder about their profession of faith. They may be backslid. They may fall away from the Lord for months and years. But we wonder about them when they don't have some sort of holiness, some disposition. If we do move in that direction, backslide, fall into sin, and we inevitably do, God will take action to bring the believer back to a path of holy writing, holy living. The writer of Hebrews says, they, that is our fathers, our parents, Discipline us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. <clears throat> so that's what's happening. We start out totally depraved, totally depraved. And God begins to work holiness in us. Number nine. In verses three and four of Romans six. Paul makes clear that this death to sin took place at conversion. Not at some later time, at conversion. Not at some dedication. Paul says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, since the New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized believers, Paul can use the believer's believer's own experience of water baptism as a kind of shorthand for the conversion experience as a whole. Water baptism symbolizes our death to sin and the impartation of new spiritual life that leads to holiness. Now, if you've been here when Pastor Ken baptizes people, like he did a couple weeks ago, 
I notice when Pastor Ken baptizes people, he always says this as he's immersing them in the water and bringing them out. He'll say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk. That baptism is an ordinance that symbolizes conversion. That's what that baptism is symbolizing. And it's symbolizing that death to sin at conversion and this new life of regenerative life that has come to you. So I say, thus Paul is saying that a fundamental distinction between the unbeliever and the believer, there is a fundamental distinction as a result of conversion that's beyond a change in legal status, justification, but also affects the person. So a while back when we talked about the fact we're all in Christ, we're united with Christ, all our benefits come because we're in Christ. We have justification and regeneration. So justification gives us legal righteousness, but regeneration brings this new life, this new disposition, this new nature, and we start changing, we start producing actual real holiness in our life. Number 10, what Paul is describing in Romans 6 is not a second work of grace, but the initial work of grace in the believer, which brings about a transformation so enormous that it can be described as death and resurrection, death to sin and a new life in Christ. This death to sin that Paul describes in Romans 6 is the actual experience of all regenerate persons and fundamentally distinguishes them from the unsaved who are under the dominion of sin. While justified people must still battle sin, they are no, not under sin's lordship, and their fundamental disposition in life is toward holiness. Paul's point in Romans 6 is that Christ's death and our union with him secures not only our justification, but also our sanctification. As John Calvin puts it, Christ justifies no one whom he does not at the same time sanctify. All right, let's talk about a second issue that we've been talking about, and that is the second blessing theology say, at some later time in your life, you have this dedication, this consecration. As I say here under C1, from the time of Phoebe Palmer's Altar Theology Forward, Second Blessing Advocates, Higher Life Keswick, have universally argued for the need of a crisis act of dedication or surrender as essential for progressive sanctification. For instance, Charles Ryrie says, we talked about Dr. Ryrie last week, there is perhaps no more important matter in relation to the spiritual life than dedication. Before any lasting progress can be made on the road of spiritual living, the believer must be a dedicated person. It is the basic foundation for sanctification. Here's Miles Stanford, another Keswick uh, writer, speaker of the past. He says, he's even more emphatic. God asks us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. Until we have done this, there is nothing else we can do. So there's no progress, no nothing, until you get this dedication. And there's Ryrie's diagram. I've taken that from his balance. Christian life, that's you're unsaved, you accept Christ, you're a carnal Christian, this category, but then you have this dedication experience sometimes later, Romans 12, Christ becomes Lord of your life, you become a spiritual person. 1 Corinthians 2.15, the King James says, he that is spiritual, we talked about Chafer's book last time, he had by that title. 
Number two, though the scriptures urge the dedication and continual surrender of Christians to their Lord, and dedication is part of sanctification, the Bible provides no basis for a once-for-all act of dedication to make Christ Lord of one's life in order to begin the process of progressive sanctification. This is especially true of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as I say here, chapter 12 begins the final section of Paul's letter to the Romans. He shifts his focus from instruction to exhortation. What we might call the indicative, that is indicative means statements of fact, statements about the gospel, what God has done, to the imperative, commands, what we are to do in response. The indicative, what God has done for us, is found in chapters 1 through 11, primarily 1 through 8. The imperative, what we are to do, is found in chapter 12 and following. Beginning in chapter 12, it's our obedience made possible by the transforming power of the gospel that Paul calls upon believers to render. And in the first two verses of chapter 12, Paul says that our response to God's grace in our lives should be the presenting of ourselves, the dedication of ourselves, which Paul explains is really an act of worship. God desires our dedication, and that dedication is in fact true and proper worship. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is actually a metaphor. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. He's not talking about literally offering yourself. He's talking about a metaphor, a figurative way of illustrating what he will say in verse 2. Now, you'll see I'm going to tie this very closely to verse 2. Paul uses sacrificial language to describe the dedication he desires. We are urged to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Though Paul says we are to present our bodies, he really means our entire person. The word body is used in a figurative way to stand for the whole person. Now, there's a technical term for this, synecdoche. i got to get that professor in there somewhere, you know, synecdoche, you know. All that, all that, all that training didn't go for nothing, you know, synecdoche, you know. I can barely pronounce it, but... At least I got it in my notes, you know. Well, that's a technical term for a part for a whole. Sometimes we speak of a part of something when we really mean the whole of something. So we refer to the part even though we mean the whole. For instance, we may, I don't know if you've heard of this expression, all hands on deck. Especially in the Navy, all hands on deck, you know. And what that means is it's a command for all the whole crew to come on deck. There's an emergency. There's something. All hands on deck. But it doesn't mean just bring your hands. It means brings your whole body. But the hands are what you're going to use. So when you say all hands on deck, it means all people on deck. Everybody to the task. The whole person. Paul uses the term body because it's the bodies of animals that were placed on the altar. When Paul says, offer your body, that's what animals' bodies were put on the altar. He really means the entire person. God calls us to present ourselves to him, and that will become very clear in verse 2. Now, we come to the idea number 5 here of this one time, once for all, 
dedication. This, as I say here, the idea of a one-time, once-for-all dedication is falsely, falsely, I said, extracted from the word offer in verse 1, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. For example, Ryrie says, first of all, there must be an initial decisive and crisis presentation. This is represented in the Greek by the aorist infinitive. Therefore, the presentation of the body is a single, irrevocable act of surrender rather than a series of repeated acts of dedication. Rivalry appeals to the fact that the infinitive, that verb, which is infinitive, offer, the word offer, is in the Greek aorist tense. Aorist is the technical name for one of the past tenses in New Testament Greek. And as I say here, but no grammar has ever suggested, no Greek grammar, that the aorist tense means once-for-all action, though it was once a popular and widespread misconception. And this is hard to understand because um, this, I just said, no Greek grammar has ever said that, has ever said that the, that the aorist tense, this word offers in the aorist tense, so Ravi says, because it's in the aorist tense, it means a once-and-for-all, never to be repeated. Well, no Greek grammar has ever said that. But Greek grammars said things that were a little confusing. And people got confused on this. When I went to college and when I went to seminary, I was taught by my Greek teacher that the Greek aorist tense meant a once and for all action. I was taught that. And this was, this, this went around for a hundred years. This has been taught and if we went into Pastor Ken's library and pulled books off the shelf, we could find books in there where authors are saying, this is in the aorist tense, there it means a once and for all action. It wasn't an uncommon thing, even though it was untrue. Uh, as I say, when I was in seminary, I was taught this. But then gradually it, be- began, it began to be corrected. I remember I read an article in 1972 about this called the abused heiress that sort of corrected this and showed that the grammars didn't really mean that. It's a technical question. All I can say is that that's being corrected today. You don't, you don't hear that. So if a person went to seminary today or college, they wouldn't hear that. Here's Ryrie at Dallas Seminary. The foremost Greek grammarian in the United States is at Dallas Seminary and he has a large grammar, and he spends an entire section saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So this has all been corrected, but it was a common view that the aorist tense. Now, why was that? Because there's a lot of things in theology that happen one time, and we like to find proof of things. You know, we want to prove something. Uh, justification is a one-time act, so if it's in the aorist tense, that proves it's a one-time. So sometimes we're looking for proofs that really sh- we shouldn't be looking for. All I can say is that that is not true. And I just cited a couple examples. Even if you didn't know Greek and all that, if you took this theology of the aorist means a once and for all act and you applied it to other texts, you would come out nonsense. For instance, 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, honor God with your bodies. That word honor, the verb, the imperative, is in the aorist tense. Well, Paul doesn't mean honor God with your body one time, does he? No. No one would say the heiress means one-time honoring. Or he tells Timothy, with that imperative, the heiress, preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Well, he doesn't mean for Timothy, preach it one time, Timothy, <laughs> and never repeat it again. So you can see it doesn't make any sense in Romans 12.1. It doesn't prove that this dedication is a one-time, once-for-all. 
And as I say here, there's really nothing about the verb offer, nothing in the context in Romans 12, 1. There's nothing at all that would make us think that this is a once and for all dedication. And I think verse 2 will show just the opposite is true. Paul tells us to make a dedication. He doesn't tell us if we're to do it one time or every day. He doesn't really say. He just says dedicate. Page 39, number 6. Having said all this, I need to remind you again that in verse 1, Paul has been using a metaphor. Verse 1 is actually a figurative way, a symbolic way of expressing, of illustrating what Paul will say in verse 2. So Paul uses an illustration, offer yourselves, and verse 2, he's going to explain what that really means. Verses 1 and 2 are really parallel. So what does it mean to offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices? How do we do that? To find out, we have to look at verse 2. Verse 2 actually begins with the word an, the Greek word chi. It's omitted in the NIV, but if you've you know, memorized Romans 12, 2, you remember it always starts with, and be not, and be not conformed to this world. You remember that word and is there. <clears throat> it's the Greek word chi. And this word often has the sense, or sometimes has the sense of, and so, that is, namely. It's what grammarians call an explicative. Grammarians can't have simple words, you know. Explicative or explanatory. Sometimes when you have a chi, what comes next is explaining what was just said. The chi says and, but it really means namely. Let me give you an example of this. I didn't write it, but I'll let you think about it. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Listen as I read this, and I'll mention it a couple times. I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The words I'm talking about are these. That all of you agree and, there's the and, that all of you agree, that is, here's what I mean by all of you agree, that is, that there be no divisions among you. So when Paul says that all of you agree, that is, there be no divisions among you. When he says that all of you agree, he doesn't mean, I don't, I don't mean that you have to agree about everything. I just mean you have to agree in such a way that there be no divisions among you. So we don't have to have perfect agreement, but we have to agree in such a way that our disagreements don't lead to divisions. We don't all have to agree that the University of Michigan is the best football team. We should agree, but we don't have to agree. (laughs) You know. But our disagreements cannot cause divisions in the church. We can, you know, disagree about which political candidate we like, this one or that one, but we can't disagree to the point of causing divisions in the church. So that's what I'm saying here in verse 2. Verse 2 is explaining verse 1. It gives the means, the way we carry out the exhortation of verse 1 to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Number 7. The kind of dedication that Paul calls for in 12.1 is explained in verse 2 as a lifelong transformation. We can only offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, if we do not conform to the pattern of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this aorist tense verb of verse 1 is explained in verse 2 by two present tense verbs. Conformed, conformed and transformed. Now, present tense does stress a progressive, ongoing. 
the progressive, ongoing nature of the believer's participation that is required in this dedication to God. The sacrifice that Paul urges on the Romans is no one-time act. This transformation actually begins with conversion. At that time, we received a new nature that motivates and enables us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. However, if this sacrifice is to continue to please God in the ongoing trials and temptations of everyday life, the believer must continually be transformed. This ongoing transformation, Paul tells us, is accomplished by the renewing of your mind. The believer's mind needs to be, in effect, reprogrammed to bring it in conformity to the Word of God. So, number eight, what Paul wants from us, who are recipients of his grace, is not so much a specific act of dedication, but a life of dedication. Now, there may be times in our lives when we come away from the Lord, we come back, we say we're dedicating, that's fine. But Paul's talking about a life of dedication. Paul's metaphor of dedication is the model for the normal Christian life. What God desires from his children is that they continually resist conformity to this age while they are at the same time being transformed into the very image of Christ. This transformation involves the whole person, an ongoing, lifelong transformation that is from the inside out so that the spiritual renewal renewal begun at regeneration continues until the day of glorification. This passage is no doubt using the imagery of dedication, but it cannot and does not support the theology of sanctification through a single, once-for-all act of dedication. It does not teach that sanctification begins and depends upon such a dedication. In truth, sanctification begins at the time of justification, conversion, and is the natural and inevitable result of conversion. Dedication is an ongoing process of transformation that should be taking place every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Help us, Father, to reflect upon the need for our continual transformation, to have our minds renewed on the word of God. Thankful for this church and the opportunity we have to hear the word of God. Help us, Lord, to have the kind of repentant hearts and obedient spirits we need to grow in grace and become the kind of holy people you desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.